0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence. I ask you to take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and mold them and shape them according to your purposes. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what can we learn about the church and her mission from the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey? That's the question this morning. What can we learn about the church and her mission from the start of Paul's first missionary journey? Now, I wanted to say two things by way of introduction. First, just to remind you of our geography as we continue this series. Since you're swimming in a river that already exists, I need to tell you where you are. So... We started in Acts chapter one, and Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Judea and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we've been slowly watching in this series called Outward Bound as the gospel has gone with its centrifugal force out from the center of Jerusalem. And it finally made its way in chapter 11 to what is called the God fearing world, which is this group of people right on the edge of Judaism who respect Judaism theologically, but they don't want to become Jews culturally but they're still fascinated by the monotheistic tradition. So they're God fears. They take the reality of God and the importance of faith very seriously. They're right on the edge. And then last week we went to Antioch and we came to paganism with a capital P. And so now we are officially to the uttermost parts of the earth where we will be for the rest of our series. And there are actually three missionary journeys that Paul will undertake. And this is the first one. And they all have wonderful stories and great significance. That's the first point the second point is this is a for what sermon this is a sermon where i come back to what i say all the time the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing right but but you would be amazed brothers and sisters how many families how many businesses how many people don't actually know what the main thing is or they used to know what the main thing is and they forget this is also true of the church One of my favorite people in the church who's gone from this world to the next is a guy, and I'm not making this up, his name is E.V. Hill. And he was once the head minister of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, California, which is an amazing church for another time. And one of the wonderful stories he tells about his church is every year in December he had a meeting, and it was called the For What Meeting. That's F-O-R space What. And the problem he had was this. Every year, his church would proliferate all these committees, hundreds of them. And if you knew anything about this church, you'd be amazed. They had a pimp committee. They had a prostitute committee. This church is dead serious, And, and the pimp committee was officially in charge of getting the gospel to pimps, and the prostitute committee was officially in charge of... But the reason he had this for what meeting every year is there were so many committees that popped up out of nowhere that he ended up with hundreds of committees, and so the for what meeting was, and I promise I'm not making this up either, the person would come in, the chairman, and he would look them in the eye and say, for what reason does your committee exist? And if they couldn't answer the question in 15 seconds or less, their committee was toast. And every year he did this, he, he eliminated hundreds of committees because they would ar- arise, and then they would exist, and they'd just sort of sit there, and nobody knew where they were there anymore. They were just sort of out there like Sputnik, right? Just floating in space, like a lot of us, like a lot of companies, like a lot of people. And so it's important to pause and say, for what reason does the church exist? All right. Now, here we go. Let's look at your text and let's consider it together. And I'm hoping I can have it up on the screen. We're in Acts chapter 13. First, the nature of the church. Second, the nature of a mission. First, a word about the nature of the church. If you look at your text, you'll see all these groovy names. Did you catch all that in verses one to three? There are all these really interesting people that are described. They're not the same people. They're very diverse people. Barnabas who is a levite from Cyprus labors alongside Simeon who is a black man and Lucius a roman from Cyrene in north africa and Menaean who in his youth was chosen as a companion to prince Herod Antipas who all the same minister with Saul who used to be a pharisee who's from Cilicia in southeast asia minor and what is being said here about the church is absolutely vital as we begin now you need to know lots of things about why you're here this morning, but one of the ways I want you to learn to think about Sunday morning is you are practicing for eternity. You do know that, right? The church's job is to be a little glimpse of heaven on earth. A very inadequate glimpse, I grant you. A very broken church, for sure, but we are supposed to be practicing for eternity. And here's a news flash for you heaven is not all people who are Americans who speak English. <laughs> If you peel back the curtain of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7, for example, and you see what heaven looks like, as John does in his vision on the Isle of Patmos, it says, and I quote, people from every language and tongue and tribe and nation. It is a multi ethnic, multilingual, multinational society. That is the nature of the church with whom we have to do. When I was a college student, I went to the Urbana Missions Conference, which is held at the University of Illinois indoor sports center, which holds between 17,000 and 20,000 people. And one of the things that they had us do with all these college students from all over North America gathered was, they said, okay, we want everybody to pray the Lord's Prayer in their own language. And they they just left the, the stage blank in terms of sound, and you could hear 50, 60, 70 different languages being spoken. All these different languages, it was to remind us of the nature of the church of which we are a part. This is the church as it's supposed to be. And did you happen to catch that the vestry had a meeting and 40% of the vestry were sent to the mission field? Boy, there's there's a mission meeting. There's a sacrificial vestry. And so far as we can gather, by the way, as we're flying by, they were probably two of the most gifted people in the church that were sent out. That's actually the way the church used to do things. It's the most gifted people who are supposed to be going into the ministry. Not those who are six days irrelevant and the seventh day incomprehensible, right? <laughs> six days, you don't know what they're doing, and then the seventh day, you don't know what they're saying. That's not what, it, that's not what it's about. They're incredibly gifted. So first of all, just to give you a vision of the church as it's supposed to be, when this missionary journey is undertaken, it's full of different languages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, And this is the way the church is supposed to be, and this is ultimately the church we're headed to in glory. you all with me so far? All right, now, let's watch the mission, which is our real focus. So here they go. They're sent out by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, look at your text, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And they go from the coast of Asia Minor, and they go about 130 miles southwest, and they go to the island of Cyprus which is a huge island of great importance from very early times it was the heart of the shipping lanes between Syria Asia Minor and Greece in 57 BC it was annexed from Rome by Rome from Egypt sorry and in 55 it was incorporated into the province of what was called Cilicia and the guy that you read about in this passage is called a proconsul When you think about the Bible, you always have to use analogies. What I want you to do is I want you to think about him as the governor, right? If you think of the word governor, it's a pretty important office, right? I had this experience once where uh, I got a phone call and the person said, Hello, are you Kendall Harmon? I said, Yes. She said, Hold for the governor. And the next thing I know, I was on the phone with the governor of South Carolina. This is when Mark Sanford was the governor. The problem is I got no warning and I got no time. So I'm sitting there sucking wind thinking, who am I talking to? Why is the governor calling me? What did I do wrong? Etc. Etc. But But the point is the governor is a very important person. As it is now, as it was then. And this is a story about the conversion of a governor of a whole area. And if you can convert the governor, that's a real advance for the gospel. So they don't know what we know because we get to read with the omniscient narrator the story. But ultimately, by going to this island, they're actually going to do nothing less than convert the governor. And what I want you to see is how they go about doing that. All right, so let's look. First, it is a ministry of proclamation. They get there and they say what? Um, We were sent by the church. Um, We're here to serve. Um, We really appreciate the opportunity. None of that stuff. Look at what it says. Look at verse 5. They proclaim the word of God. I cannot stress to you enough, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Right before I came into worship this morning, one of my friends who's a lifelong soccer fan sent me a, a text, which is about an Everton fan who got to take a penalty kick yesterday. I know nothing about this. I still, don't even, I still haven't even watched it. Here's, here's the point. He's a soccer fan. He knows I'm a soccer fan. He sent me news. Did he ask my permission? No. Did he ask if I'd be interested? No. He just sent the news because we're friends and he knows I love soccer. And there's this, he, he said, and I quote, this is the most amazing thing I think I've ever seen. That's the text. I still haven't had time to watch it. I'm dying to get a chance to watch it. But that's not the point. The point, the point is, think about in your life how you share news, right? Have you been around a Clemson fan? right? Do you have to ask a Clemson fan if, if they want to tell you about the football team? right? Have you ever known one? We live in a state which is nutty about football, right? How do they talk to you? You get to their house, you're at a meal. Have you heard about our new recruit? The new quarterback is six foot two, and man, is he fast. How about Dabo Sweeney's team this year, huh? I mean, they're just right in your face. <laughs> and they're just sharing new, they're excited about their team. When I served in Sumter for three years, we had a family who were died in the wool Clemson fans, every single thing in their house was orange. And I'm not making this up. Even the toilet seat cover was orange. That's literally true. Guess what they talked about all the time. Okay, so they're sharing the good news of the gospel, which is what? It's news. It's something that happened in time and space history, which is what? It's that you're a person so bad that God had to die for you. And God is so good that he was delighted to die for you. That's the gospel in two sentences. Right. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and died on the cross for our sins. That's the message. Because God loved us that much. That's news. It's something that happened in space and time history. It's not advice. It's not how to live. And it's not something you're bashful about saying. You don't have to say to a Clemson fan, do you feel like sharing about Clemson today? And do you ever get with a Clemson fan where they say, you know, would you like to consider hearing about Clemson today? (laughs) That's not the way that Clemson fans talk. This isn't the way that they're talking. They simply show up and they proclaim the truth of the message, which they believe God has given them, which is a truth for the whole world. And as we go flying by, can I just remind you that our God is a global God, right? He sent Abraham to the world and he said, Through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. So our God is a God who's after the whole world. He made the whole world. He came and died for the whole world. And he's after getting his truth to the whole world. And that's the way that they're functioning. All right. So they're truth tellers of the gospel and they're sharing news like Clemson fans share about Clemson. Naturally, continuously, honestly, publicly. That's the way, p- way people share news. Whether you want it or not, you get it because it's important to them, so they share it because people share what's important to them. Y'all with me so far? All right. So number 1, proclamation. Number 2, drum roll please. Surprise, surprise, opposition. <laughs> Wow. this is this is great sound effects you 're going to really tempt me <laughs> I, I, have to, I have to be careful. that was wonderful. Thank you for that so in the lord 's prayer, which I point out all the time, is not simply a prayer that we 're supposed to pray every day but is actually a pair of glasses that the Lord calls us to put on through which to see the world, right. So it's actually a a summary of what it means to be a Christian, to think Christianly about the world. Every single day we pray, lead us not to temptation and deliver us from evil. Guess why? Because we're opposed. Okay? Jonathan and I just did a baptismal service at the early service. And there are three renunciations and there are three positive promises. And the three renunciations are, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that are against God? Do you renounce the devil, then the world, then the flesh? So as a Christian, when you're baptized into Christianity, you come into a world where you are opposed So look at your text and think about this. Paul and and Barnabas bring the gospel to this island. They're just coming across the island, going to the next center of population, going to the next center of population. And this governor is intrigued because he hears through gossip about this, and he's intrigued, so he wants them to come and speak to him. And so they get the governor, but they also get the governor's spiritual advisor, who's a spiritual disaster. Now let's pause and make sure that we all stay with the film. Okay, so people who are in power and people who are very well educated are not always very spiritually aware or adept. You do know this, right? (laughs) I went to school with people like this. I I have friends who are absolutely brilliant, doing absolutely amazing things. And if you ask them about spiritual things, they know less than a one-year-old, spiritually speaking. They are pathetic. Spiritually, It doesn't follow that if you're intelligent or if you're capable or if you're gifted, you know a lot about the gospel. And one of the things about power is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And one of the ways power corrupts is people who are involved in non-Christian spiritual practices that are spiritually dangerous, like the occult, like to have power and money. And so they get next to power. So this guy, Elemas the magician is his name, who's a magician in the court of the governor, what a surprise, right? He likes power, he likes to be close to power, is clearly there because the proconsul, the governor, is letting him be there. By the way, if you drum roll back to Herod, you remember Herod, right? You remember when Herod tried to figure out where the wise men went? You remember how he tried to do it? He said, he said, you got, got his magicians together and said, what, you guys, come on, what, what's the deal? Right. You Remember Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament? He had a whole bunch of magicians, right? People who are in power have spiritual power next to them. For those of you who are president and historian fans, right, you do know that in the Reagan administration, there was an astrologer who had great influence. That's just a matter of historical record. Not one comment one way or the other politically about that administration. The point is simply that um, occult practices like to get next to power. And don't even get me started about the kind of practices going on in California. I, the, other, the other day, the, the, seriously, the other day, the Los Angeles Times had an article about yoga people who are getting excited about QAnon. I almost lost my mind. I mean, there, there's, I don't even know where to start in terms of the level of spiritual confusion. I mean, they're doing yoga and they're meeting other people who are getting involved in conspiracy theories on the Internet and they're getting excited about QAnon. What a nutty combination. The land of fruits and nuts gives you yoga QAnon people. Give me a break. I mean, that's just crazy stuff. But the point is, that's the kind of stuff that's happening. So here's this magician, and here comes Paul and Barnabas telling the truth of the Word of God. And look at what your text says. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 8. It says, "Ella the magician, said, Well, you know, um, you have your perspective. I have my perspective. You say tomato. I say tomato, right? Is that what he does? Is that what Satan does with Jesus in the wilderness? You know? He's out there with Satan in the wilderness and... Satan says, well, you know, you have your perspective, I have mine. Let's have a discussion. No, Satan tries his darndest to get Jesus off track in every conceivable way. If you are the Son of God, he says, if you are the Son of God, what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to dislodge Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry from his identity as the Son of God, which is what the baptismal voice just said at the baptism of Jesus. He's trying to take him away from his foundation at the very outset of his ministry. It's like messing up the seer's tower in the basement. The whole thing collapses. That's what he's doing. Now look at, what he, look at what he says he does. He opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now what I want you to get into is these two words. First, oppose, withstand. Uh, incredibly strong word. It, it's a word that's used for wind to blow against. So if you learn to sail, right? You learn very early in sailing that you don't hold on to the sail with all your might if you get in a really bad storm. You do that, you give the wind, resistance against which to push, and your boat goes over. Right? But have you ever been in a boat, especially a sailboat, where the wind is against you? Not fun. Not easy. Not tranquil. Right? It's very, very stressful. And the language is striking. It says, ingressive. He began to oppose them, and from that moment... The entire rest of the time he continued to oppose them. And not only that, look at your text, verse 8, not only did he oppose them like this constant wind blowing in their face, trying everything he could to dislodge the proconsul from giving his attention to these guys, but he also sought to take their arguments and turn them against them so that the proconsul wouldn't believe what they were saying. So there was a spiritual countervailing wind and there was an intellectual countervailing argument, both at the same time all the time. Well, Paul was a spiritual giant and he was greatly discerning and he could see with the eyes of his heart, which is a phrase that he uses in his own writings, he could see behind the person that he was looking at, somebody else. And this is important for us to pause and make sure that we understand. Part of the lesson of this passage is real spiritual discernment is seeing always this world in the light of the next you do know this right so think about Matthew 16 you already know this but let me just remind you you remember when Jesus says in Matthew 16 says now I'm gonna I've got to go to Jerusalem and I got to die and and Peter says no you're not doing that and Jesus looks at Peter and says get behind me Peter right that's the way the, no that's not what, but that's not what it says it actually if you think about it for a second it initially doesn't make sense what he says He doesn't say, he's looking right at Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, who's behind Peter. So to think spiritually as a discerning Christian, as a Christian leader, to see a situation as it really is, you can't just see this world, you've got to see this world and the next, and Satan is lurking behind this guy. This is, in fact, the main child of hell on this island, without a doubt. Right? You think about the parable of the wheat and the tares, and it says, Satan sowed the tares to tear away from the crop, right? I think about uh, the parable of the sower, right? Satan comes and snatches away the, 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 the seed from the soil. It's that kind of a thing. He's that powerful. So, so Paul says, this is evil. And as I go uh, flying by, let me just say a word about this. Um, this is your C.S. Lewis moment for the morning. In uh, his writings, he says about evil, he says this, there's two equal and opposite errors, one is to believe in evil too much. The other is to believe in evil not at all. Guess where most of us fall? In the West. Not on the too much side. Right? We're all, are we all together on that? Right? So our, part of our problem is we don't take evil seriously. And we don't take spiritual evil seriously. Now, I have some friends who are on the other side. I call them demons under every rock Christians. They, they are always finding the demonic everywhere. This is not what we're talking about. Here's the thing that you need to know, brothers and sisters, if you don't already. If in your life you encounter evil, there is one thing that you will know for sure, and that is, this is evil. People who encounter evil in the Bible never ask, oh, is this evil? That's not the question. The question is, oh, no, what do we do? So I'm sitting there at Kairos. For those of you who don't know, is administrative prisons at Kirkland Correctional Institute. This is in the late mid-1980s. One of my friends is up front giving the talk. And there's a guy in the back. These are these are life these most of these guys are lifers in this prison. And he could probably bench press, I don't know, four hundred pounds. He could easily have picked me up and thrown me from one side of the room to the other. And this guy is listening to my friend and all of a sudden, no warning, he goes, he's about six three, huge guy. He just goes straight down the floor and starts writhing un- in- uncontrollably in the back. I mean, everybody noticed it. So next thing I know, it- it's like the life commercial. I'm dating myself, but you, you know the life commercial. I don't want to eat it. Will you eat it? No, let's give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. Right? So the next thing I know, we're in- I'm in a back room with this guy writhing all over the floor. And they say, we don't know what to do. You're a priest. You do something. Right? So they're going to give it to the priest because he'll figure it out. <laughs> Right. Well, I won't, I won't take you through the whole story. It took seven of us, uh, and it was, a, it, it was a very dramatic deliverance. But here's the, here's the point. I was never asking myself the question, hmm, is this evil? <laughs> you, I wish I had a picture of this guy's face. It was, I was scared out of my mind. Every person in the room was scared out of their mind. It was scary. It was powerful. It needed to be opposed. You do not have time. Uh, when you get evil in your life, to think about how you're going to respond, you need to know now. Right? And what does Jesus do? Quote Scripture. Right, your, your weapon is the Word of God. You have to bring God in instantly. The Word of God and prayer is the only way through. And here's Paul, and he gets a word. He knows what he's got to do. He looks. Look at what it says verse 9. This is a real, what the missiologists call, power encounter. And Paul looks at this guy and sees Satan behind him and says, You son of the devil... You're the, you're the person from hell on this island. You're the enemy of all righteousness. You're full of deceit. Stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Oh, that'll preach. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Now that's harsh, right? I mean, I thought the gospel was all about love. What's the big deal? Well, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. If he wants to commit spiritual suicide, that's one thing. But if he wants to take down the whole island and the governor with him, that's entirely another You ever talk to an oncologist? You ever been in an oncologist's office? They don't talk neutrally about cancer. They don't say, well, we found a bunch of cancer. Let's discuss it in a month. That's not how they talk. We found this mass. It's got this amount of strength. And here's what we need to do. We need to go in and we need to operate next month. You need to do chemo for six weeks because we need to nail this thing. Because if we don't nail this thing, you're going to die. That's the way oncologists think. That's the way oncologists talk. They are serious because the stakes are high. Paul is serious because nothing less than the spiritual future of this island for the gospel is at stake. By the way, as we go flying by, I hope you will note the gracious appropriateness of the judgment. Here's a man who's leading people away, who thinks he sees but is actually spiritually blind and is leading people away falsely, who is put in the position where he can no longer see and he has to depend on others to see. So the guy who, who himself was already spiritually blind is given a temporary sentence of blindness, undoubtedly by the Lord, to lead him back to faith, and we never hear what happens to him, but probably, unfortunately, it didn't work. And then what happens? First proclamation, second opposition. I love verse 12. The decisive deliverance of the Lord. And it says, The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, look carefully and think, he was astonished at the incredible deliverance by the hand of Paul. That's what you would expect it would say, right? I mean, that's a big deal, right? Do you think after we got that demon out of that guy that we were not amazed? We were amazed. We were also exhausted. It took hours. But that's not what it says. It says he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When the wind stopped and the the leading astray stopped, finally, 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 the full truth of the truth of the gospel and the news that happened in history could reach this governor on its own terms, without opposition. And he really heard the truth. And it says he was astonished. N-E-B translation. Listen. Deeply impressed. J.B. Phillips translation shaken to the core, shaken to the core by the truth of the gospel, the reality that God really is God and the gospel is really true and has real implications. He was incredulous. Literally, you could translate it dumbfounded or struck out of one's senses, witnessing the incredible. Think about any time in your life when you witness something truly incredible. That's what he was feeling, because he experienced the truth of God with that level of depth, and he was really converted. By the way, we have archaeological evidence about him that he and his family were Christians. You can actually look it up if you're interested. So this was a real conversion that had real weight and really changed the course of history. John Stott says this, What astonished him was the apostles' teaching. The gospel triumphed over the occult, yes, but the truth triumphed over error, and the truth that happened in history gave him the deliverance he so eagerly sought. Precisely. To quote Paul in one of his epistles, he was delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom he has redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You all with me? So, three things proclamation, opposition, conversion. That's apostolic ministry. All right, now I go from preaching to meddling, then we're done. So how about a word about the church, for starters? Just a word. I'm a big poetry fan because of my mom, who was an English teacher. You may know Robert Frost's poem about the wall, the mending wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And I always think of his neighbor whom he quotes in the, in the, in the poem, good fences make good neighbors, right? which is the way so many of us think. And here, here's the question I want you to think about. Is there not a challenge here to all of us about prejudice and ethnocentrism? What's a Christian way to think about prejudice? Think about this for a second. What do you think? Do you, do you know what the Christian way is to think about prejudice? You gotta think about it from original sin out, not from the culture in, right? What do you do if you if you ask an average group of people, say forty people just randomly, and you say, I would like to take a poll. How many are prejudiced? How many put up their hands? Almost no one. If you're really lucky you get one honest person, you might get one or two hands, right? What's the Christian answer? Absolutely. Absolutely. The only question is how are we prejudiced and what are we not seeing? Right, And you live in the most ethnocentric nation in the history of the world. I hope you know that. So you have a double problem. You're a Christian with prejudice, and then you're an American with ethnocentric prejudice at the beginning of the 21st century in the most powerful nation in the world. So we need to ask the question, are we praying to God in our daily life for God to make sure to get the scales to fall from our eyes? Because otherwise we're just going to ignore things that we shouldn't and not see people that we should. You all with me? We spend the rest of the morning on this. Or the other way to ask the question is, what are the walls that should come tumbling down in your life? Is there anybody in your life, whether it's a garbage man or the mailman or somebody walking the dog on your street? um, We're trying to learn everybody on our street's names. One of the guys on our street just walks his dog every day, and I say hi. I just reach up my head from the house, and I just say hi to him. He's Jack who walks the dog. It's just one way of trying to get through the wall. What are the walls that the Lord is calling you to get through? That's question number one. Number two, got to say something about the Bible. Look at this emphasis in this passage, brothers and sisters, on the Word of God. Verse 5, they proclaim the Word of God. Verse 12, astonished at the teaching of the Lord. One of the things I brought with me today that you may already know about is, toward the end of his life, Billy Graham was asked this question. This is a very hauntingly powerful question. If you had your life to live over again, what would you do differently? By the way, that's worthy of your pondering this afternoon since you're still here and haven't gone from this world to the next. The time to ask that question is now, not later. Because all life is a gift and you never know, right? His answer, one of my greatest regrets is I did not study enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less. People have pressured me into speaking to groups that I should have only been studying and preparing for. Donald Barnhouse once said if he knew the Lord was coming in three years, he'd spend two of them studying the word and then one preaching. I'm trying to make up for lost time. From undoubtedly the greatest evangelist in the last hundred years, bar none. That's the importance of the Word of God to him. And the Bible is nothing less than a love letter written by our eternal lover, God Himself. And just think about it. How do you respond to love letters? Those of you used to be in love and you've forgotten what it's like. Do you remember? Right? Did you go running to the mailbox? Of course you did. Did you read the letter once and stop? No. That's not the way people respond to love letters. A real, lively church is a Word of God church. It's in the Word of God all the time at a corporate level, at an individual level. Somebody has said Christians are like tea. Right? The more saturated they are in the Word of God, the deeper and the richer and the fuller they are. And just two plugs for you. One is... If you don't have a study Bible, brothers and sisters, that you can read on your own that you like, exactly when are you going to start? You do know this about me, right? I've been at this for 30 years now. I still meet Christians in Anglican churches all the time, and they say to me, well, I try, but I don't have a Bible that I like. And I'm like, well, how about go buy one? (laughs) And they're like, oh, there's an idea. And then I'm like, would you like me to recommend one that I consider good? And then in one case, the person came back to me and said, well, I don't like that Bible. I said, well, great. Take it back and get one that you like. But if you're going to read the Bible, you get one that you like, right? The other thing is, here's a little plug for small group meetings. You can't possibly live into the way this passage lays out the importance of the Word of God unless you're in a community which is studying the Word of God, talking about the Word of God, asking questions about the Word of God, so that you come out with a sense of what it means because everybody here doesn't see stuff in scripture that I see and I see things that you don't see and vice versa. There's a real power in Christian community under the word of God. So are you a biblically saturated Christian is the second question. You all with me? And then finally, we want to ask the evangelistic question. And I I love this story for so many reasons, but I love the fact that the governor of a whole island was converted And it just raises the question whether there are people in our lives that we're praying for that their eyes might be open. And here's the thing that the story makes very clear. Paul could only get there when the truth of God and the Holy Spirit of God and the deliverance of God all came together. It was not simply an intellectual argument. It was not simply a scriptural argument. It was a spiritual war. And they all had to take place at the same time. So I'm not going to ever argue anybody in the kingdom of heaven, and neither are you. So you've got to have friends in your life who are not Christians that you're praying to become Christians. You need to pray for the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But even if you get that opportunity, you've got to pray for them. One last story at a personal level, and then I'll stop. I had a woman in Sumter whose father was in the military. He he had one of those jobs where he could never talk about what he did. And she went away to college and to graduate school, and she came home for a period of time. I never knew her originally, and then she came home as an adult. And I had been there a couple of years, and she was not a Christian, but she was, inc- she was just like this proconsul. She was incredibly intrigued by Christianity, so she started coming to my office and regularly encountering me and asking me every conceivable question. We got in, knocked down, drag out arguments. Can you imagine doing this with me? Just ask my wife. <laughs> uh, arguing with me is no fun. Right? I love to argue. I also love to win. <laughs> Okay, so, and I won every argument. And, and the more we argued, the less room she got. I I kept arguing her away from her unbelief. Guess what? Nothing, she didn't convert. And I got madder and madder, and I felt like my arguments were getting better and better. And nothing was happening. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were in the middle of the bishop's process, and somebody called a secret meeting in Buford, and I was living in Sumter, and it's not a short drive. And I I was so mad, I thought, okay, that's it. I've had it. So I prayed for this woman all the way from Sumter to Beaufort. And then I prayed for her all the way home. She called me the next day. She was converted. I'll never forget that. My whole life. And I had nothing. There was no argument. She called me. About six hours of prayer for one person. Just a nice reminder of how it works. Right? Doesn't matter how good the argument is, you're not getting her into the kingdom, Kendall. The kingdom. Only the Holy Spirit can get her into the kingdom. But you better you better pray that she gets in the kingdom, because that's what I want, and that's what the most important thing. So, brothers and sisters, I give you a vision for the church and her mission. Multicultural, multi ethnic, multinational, yes, and about proclamation of the truth, and about encountering spiritual evil and dealing with it properly, and about seeking to save the lost. In Jesus' name. Amen.